Hear now the word of God. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him and of, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus Sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had, for he, so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when we met at Asos, when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, We went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask him to bless it. Lord, your word is perfect and full. It reflects the perfection and fullness of its author, which is you. Just as your word is divine, so we need divine light to see what it says. So would you give us your spirit today that we might see your word for what it truly is and receive it as food for our souls. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I can't remember if I've told this story from the pulpit before. If I have, it's been a couple of years. Um... I've been here long enough that I could say that now. Uh, um, but I used to preach at a church on the circuit around Mississippi. And one of my favorite churches that, the, that I would occasionally end up at was down south. I won't mention the name of the church um, out of uh, need to protect the, the guilty uh, from the story. But this was a very old church. One of the reasons I really liked it, it was such an old church, it actually did not have a bathroom in it. Uh, It had a separate building, and if you wanted to use the restroom, you had to go there. And um, incidentally, the bathroom had a wasp's nest in it, so it was very frightening. But (laughs) So I'm always thankful when I go to the restroom here, and there's no wasps. It's quite a luxury. 
And the pews in this church actually had doors on the pews because the church dated from the days when you would buy your own pew and you would sit in the pew that you paid for. And so um, the pulpit also was very interesting because people entered the church through the back behind the pulpit. So people would just be streaming in, coming around you as you're standing in the pulpit preaching, which is really interesting. And they had a, a pillow that you would sit your Bible on to preach. And um, it's very memorable. But anyway, um, on one, um, I always knew when I went to this particular church that the whole service would go perfectly fine, perfectly normal. But I also knew the moment I finished reading the sermon text and we would, I would tell everyone, you may be seated. There was a particular woman off to, to, to my right, basically, where Willie Ray's sitting. No, no, not to point you out too much, Willie Ray. And she would sit there, and she would lean her head against the window. And she would sleep through the entire sermon. And, I, and she was so good at it. Um, the minute I would pray at the close of the sermon, she would just spring up, like, as if she, nothing was wrong whatsoever. And I never took, I never took offense uh, because her timing was so perfect, I thought you haven't given this sermon a chance to make you sleep yet. So, um, and this morning's passage introduces us to uh, this woman's predecessor. She is not the first person to fall asleep during a sermon. And his name is Eutychus. And poor Eutychus is the father of all of those who fall asleep in church. Perhaps you feel some connection, some kinship with Eutychus. Um, except in the case of Eutychus, he literally fell asleep in church, and he fell very hard from the third story, actually. So the reason I'm drawing attention to Eutychus here is I, I think that Eutychus stands out the most. When we read this passage, we sort of miss the incidentals around the death of Eutychus, and we end up focusing just on Eutychus because it's so wild what happens to this man. And because there's something kind of funny about it, right? Even Paul, the Apostle Paul had people falling asleep during his sermons. And so the reason I'm talking about Eutychus now is because I actually don't want to focus on him during the points of the sermon. I'm almost more interested in the incidentals around the death of this man. And so that's where we're going to focus on. Um, but one of the books we read in seminary was called Saving Eutychus. How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake, which is just a great name for a book. And in that book, Gary Miller and Phil Campbell give advice to preachers on how not to have any other uh, poor, terrible accidents like that of Eutychus happen again. And when we read this passage, I think he dominates it, right? He's raised up. He's resurrected. This is a big deal. And it has a huge impact on the church where it happens. But I'm almost more interested in the practices of the church, the things we actually see happening in the passage around his, his death. One of the things that many people believe today, and it's just in the air, is this idea that organized religion, as we know it, was invented by church organizations to control people and exert power in society. But here we see that already the regular defining practices of the church as we know it today are already in place. And so this morning, instead of dwelling on poor Eutychus's tragic death and his joyful resurrection, I would actually rather we look at how the church is doing church in this section during Paul's visit here. 
And so the three defining realities of the church that we see in this chapter are the Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Comfort. And I'd like to focus on all three and offer some reflection on how we should value those things ourselves even today in 2019. First, this passage introduces us to what seems to be the first recorded formal observance of the Lord's Day. Luke records for us the final days of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He's preparing to leave, but first he visits these nearby churches in various cities, and one of those churches is the church in Troas. It is, it is in Troas that the majority of our reading takes place, certainly the parts of the passage that we're going to spend time on, but what happens in Troas? Well, there's a gathering of the Christians in this place, but notice that the timing of it, notice the timing of when they meet. Luke says it was on the first day of the week when we were gathered to break bread. The first day of the week. Now, if you translate the Greek, literally, it just says the first day after Sabbath, the first day after Sabbath. Because remember, for Jews, Saturday was the Sabbath. So these Christians don't meet on that day. They don't meet on what's called the Sabbath here. They meet on the day after that now. The question is why? Well, the resurrection of Jesus has a profound impact on how people worship. And so what happens is the Sabbath ends up moving from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. Uh, in part because Luke 24 tells us Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Now, I'm going to read just a, a section from our own church's confession about the Sabbath because I think it says it so much better than I could say it. And so I'm just going to read this section from the Westminster Confession. It says, as it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God... So in his word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in scripture is called the Lord's Day. And is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. So the confession says a couple of things worth noting. One of them is that this is a law of nature. They, they first make an appeal to natural law. They say, if you're going to worship God, you've got to do it on some day of the week. Which is a very obvious statement, right? If, you have to, if you're going to get together to worship, you have to do it at some particular time. And so they, they're making this argument from the law of nature. But then they say um, that, we, that God has given us one day, particularly out of seven. And see, the resurrection used to be, or the, the resurrection that day was the last day of the week. And now the resurrection has happened. And so the Sabbath is on the first day of the week. And it will be until the end of the world. That's the argument that essentially the confession makes. So the first time we actually see it called the Lord's Day is actually in the book of Re Revelation. It says in the book of Revelation, John is praying on Patmos and it says he was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. And so that phrase in the spirit, most scholars think it's actually referring to worshiping. He's worshiping on the Lord's Day. 
In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul instructs the churches on how they should take up the collection. How should they take up the money? And he says that it should be done specifically on the first day of every week. So notice it says every week. It's the first day of every week. So it's not like uh, this time, because Paul's here, we'll do it on the first day of the week. But we don't have to keep doing it on that day. We'll do it on other days. No, Paul actually says your collection should be happening every week. It should be a weekly occurrence. And it should always be on the first day of the week, which is what today we would call it Sunday. So for Christians, the the resurrection is such a defining event, such an earth-shaking triumph that it even changes how and when we worship. Uh, It changes what we talk about when we meet. It changes our focus. Um, But notice this, the substance of the Sabbath doesn't change. It's still a day for worshiping God. It's still a day for devoting our time and our attention to him. It's still a day for us to set aside our regular worldly concerns and cares so that we can meet together with his people, so that we can hear his word, and as we're going to see in a moment, to break bread together. And the nature of the Lord's day is is such that since we've set aside all this worldly stuff that keeps us busy all week, the idea is there is literally nothing that should be keeping us from gathering morning and evening, except, you know, providential circumstances or sickness. So you don't have to work, hopefully, unless you have a a work that involves necessity, like fireman or paramedic or nurse or doctor or those sorts of things. Um, But you don't have school going on, right? You shouldn't have to worry about homework. You shouldn't have these things that can just come up and make life complicated. And you don't know if you can get there. Because the idea is, God says, you set all that aside and it won't keep you away. And that's that's what's happening here in Troas. We already see this is their practice. So there's this purposefulness in their gathering too. Because look at the way that it's stated. There's an intentionality here. It's not an accident that everyone ends up in this place on this particular day. Because the text says, the text says they gather to break bread. They gather to break bread. In other words, there's a purpose. There's a reason why they're together. The purpose is to break bread. And so if it wasn't for the breaking of bread, they wouldn't have had a reason to meet. You see that connection there? Their gathering is purposeful. And it's centered around this meal. And in a moment, we'll talk about what it means to break bread. But just notice this. They're gathered for a purpose. They're gathered on purpose. And the purpose is to do something Jesus commanded them to do, to break bread. And so from the earliest days, this is the practice of the church. We know this not even from reading scripture, but we also know it just from documents from church history. There was an early Christian document called the Didache. Didache just means teaching, so it's just literally called the teaching. And it's thought to date back to very early in the life of the church. Some scholars think that it comes, goes back to as far as 60 AD, which would have been very close to when these events took place. And listen to what the Didache says about how the Lord's Day is observed. It says, according to the divinely instituted day of the Lord, having been gathered together, break a loaf. And then Eucharistize, it literally just means give thanks. And give thanks, having beforehand confessed your failings so that your sacrifice may be pure. So this is taking place really close to the events in the book of Acts. 
And the idea of Lord's Day worship, this idea of Christians intentionally gathering on the first day of the week to worship Jesus and break bread, is not a late development. It's not like it's something that back in the 1800s, everyone says, hey, we need this oppressive church to create so that we can boss everybody around. What should we do? Hey, let's make up this practice of meeting on the first day of the week. No, this is an ancient practice that has been around since the earliest days of the church. As soon as you have Jesus rising from the dead, you have people meeting on that day of the week. Precisely for these sorts of things. So when we meet on Sunday mornings together, keep in mind that this has long been the practice of Christians dating back to within years, perhaps even days of the resurrection. And my application on this point is very simple. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep doing it. Let's not follow the world's pattern. Because the world's pattern is towards more and more busyness, more and more work, more and more productivity. The world will keep pushing you to give this day up because for them, this is just like all the other days. For the world, Sunday is just as good as any other day. The only reason the world likes Sundays at all is because some people get that day off. It's tempting to live every day of our lives, including Sunday, just the way the world does. Very tempting. They pull us towards it. Instead, let's keep observing the Sabbath because it's a command, because it's the biblical example, and because it's a blessing that God gave to us. And so when we don't take advantage of the Sabbath, we're robbing ourselves of blessings. And let's not give it up. Let's not see it as an inconvenience. That's my application for the first point here. The second element of the gathering here in Acts 20 is the Lord's Supper. Um, And what I want you to do, though, in your minds is I don't want you to separate the Lord's Supper from the Lord's Word. Because as we're going to see in a moment, the Word preached and and the Word seen and eaten are together. You can't separate the two of them. So when it says for them to to gather to break bread, they're gathering just as much to hear God's Word together. Um. The day of the week is important, but this is the real show. This is really why they've come. The passage says Paul talked with them and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Um, One of the things that I didn't even know, I didn't even realize this. um, In much of the world, it is typical to have incredibly long worship services. Um, I was speaking to an elder in this presbytery And one of the things that their church has purposefully done and very intentionally done is they've actually tried to reach out to the black community around their church and get them involved. But one of the things they have done because of that is they've made their services longer than most churches. Uh, I went and visited there. They had an hour and a half long service, which we certainly are not used to here. And they said the reason they had an hour and a half long service is because if you ask most of those in the black church, how long are the worship services at your church? They can be up to three and four hours long. And so, and the truth is, that's the way it is in much of the world because instead of meeting twice a day, you just meet together once and you have one really long service. So Paul is speaking for hours and hours. He's speaking for a very long time and all the while they're waiting for the part where they have the breaking of bread. 
And so these people have gathered on the Lord's Day. They've, they've gathered to hear Paul speak. They want to hear this sermon, and they do. And the thing that brings them together, the thing that is the main show, is the teaching of the apostles. Please don't miss that. The preaching, the teaching of the apostles is what they come for. But then notice this. The breaking of bread doesn't happen until Paul's sermon is complete. See, until the word of God has been delivered, there is no breaking of bread. This is why I say they're bound together. And there's a very serious reason for this. If, if the sacrament was observed without the preaching of the word, it would just be like a superstitious meal. People would put it in their mouths and they would think they get all the spiritual benefits from it. People would think there's something mystical, something magical about taking the substance of the bread and the, the substance of the wine and drinking it and thinking that there's something magical that happens inside of them because of it. What sets the bread and wine apart isn't that someone waves their hand over the cup or says some incantation or something like that. Because uh, it, what sets them apart is the preached word. What sets them apart is what is meant by those things. And so when you take bread and you take wine in faith, believing in Jesus and believing in who he is, when you take those things, the thing that's symbolized in them becomes real by faith. That's why you need the preaching of the word to happen along with them. The spirit actually ministers to your heart. He actually ministers to your soul. He actually gives you what you need. And so if you've ever just eaten bread, I'm sure you've just eaten bread before. If you've ever just eaten bread, or if you've ever just drank wine without being in the gathered church, without hearing the word preached and being ministered to by the word, all you did was have food. So there's a reason why the preached word happens. The preached word is what makes the difference in the meal. Now, Paul's sermon may have been a little long, let's put it that way. And uh, it was certainly too long for Eutychus, we should admit. But the principle is still the case that after he preached, verse 11 says, when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long while. So, So they do have the sacrament once Paul's sermon is finished. And that's our practice here as well. We don't have the sacrament before the sermon. We have it after the sermon. Um, There is no sacrament without the preached word. The Lord's Supper is not magical. It isn't mystical or anything like that. It's simply God taking these common elements. And because we believe the word that we've just heard, the Spirit says, here you go. It's the thing you need most. Food for your souls. Christ himself. Third, I want you to notice another dominant theme in the passage, and that's the theme of the Lord's comfort. Peppered throughout this passage is this repeated emphasis on encouragement. Um, Chapter 20, verse 1 says, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell. The second verse, it says he had given them much encouragement, and he came to Greece. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, he lifts up Eutychus. Eutychus rises and it says they were not a little comforted. See, Paul's ministry in these places is dominated by this purpose of bringing comfort, bringing encouragement. Paul is an encouragement bringer. When he speaks, people are built up. And I I know when we think of the word comfort, we sort of think of being at rest or, or being at ease 
Um, but the actual word comfort has more of a sense of being built up. It's more a word about being strengthened. When you hear the word comfort, I want you to think of being strengthened, not set at ease, not laziness. Don't let laziness and comfort mix together because that's not what Paul's doing. He's not bringing ease to these people. The Greek word here is parakleos, and parakleos means come alongside of. And in the, in the Bible, Jesus calls the spirit the parakleos. He's the one that brings you comfort. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean he makes you feel good. That doesn't mean that he makes you feel at ease. When you think of comfort, think of being strengthened. And sometimes being strengthened means feeling bad. Sometimes being strengthened means you don't feel good about yourself. Uh, Sometimes being comforted means that you're convicted of sin. And you discover you have something that you need to repent of, something in your life that's darkened your soul. It doesn't necessarily mean to be made happy. It is actually possible for the Bible to tell you things that make you uncomfortable and, and maybe even make you feel bad about yourself. And yet when it's all finished, you can say, God comforted me. God comforted me because he pointed out my sin. God comforted me. Because he made me feel the guilt of what I'd done. Sometimes real biblical encouragement actually does make us feel bad. I think we need to embrace that. I think that we need to realize that that's the reality. God wants more than for you to be at ease. He wants you to be strong in the faith. And those things are not uh, sympathetic to each other. Being at ease and being comforted are sometimes enemies of each other. Sometimes we need to be stung. Sometimes we need to be soothed. The word is meant to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So there are going to be sermons where you come in. There are going to be Sundays where you come in or times when you read the Bible where you are so brokenhearted for something in your life. There is no shortage of brokenheartedness in our lives. And you're going to be so brokenhearted that when you hear God's word, for you to be comforted means that you're going to be set at ease. You are going to be set at ease because it's what you need. But there are also going to be times when you're going to hear the word and for you to be comforted, it's going to mean that it stings and it hurts and it's unpleasant. And maybe even in the moment you say, I wish I didn't hear that. We always need to be strengthened. We always need to be built up. And that's what the work of comforting looks like. And we see it here this morning in the early ministry of the church. Oftentimes Christians want to grow. They want to be strengthened, but they want to use gimmicks. You know, they want to use microwave solutions so they can grow. But the truth is reading and sitting under the word of God, just like these believers in Troas are doing. That's the best way of being comforted. And that's the best way of being built up in a biblical way. As we think about what the church is, what the church does, what the church should be, I think it's very tempting to get sidetracked by making activities and programs and events the measure of whether a church is active or whether a church is healthy. So if there's not a lot of extracurricular, extra outside of the church activities going on, then we think to ourselves, man, is the church in a decline? Or if there's a lot going on, we tell ourselves, wow, that church is really happening. What a lively church. What a a live congregation. 
And both of those are mistakes. Um, For example, what this means is that activities outside the regular commanded services are fun and they're they're encouraging and, and we love having them, but we shouldn't make activities like cookouts or softball leagues or extracurricular church activities the measure of whether we're being faithful or whether the church is healthy. We need a biblical perspective and more importantly than these extra things are the fundamentals of what we've been given as a church to do by God. Are we doing what the church does? Are we meeting weekly on the Lord's day with God's people? Are we sitting under the faithful preaching and ministry of the word? Are we receiving the sacraments that Jesus has given us to enrich our hearts? Are we being encouraged and built up for the work of living the Christian life? Are we making disciples as Jesus tells us to do? And are we baptizing them like Jesus commands? This is just sort of incidental. But when you're thinking about the health of the church, as I said, it's easy to look at those things and say whether a church is healthy or not. Um, And I will just give you a look inside of my own heart in terms of how I gauge health in a church. Uh, To me, I I don't look at the activities of the church outside of the church service as an indicator of the health of the church. I don't look at Wednesday night attendance to decide whether or not I think we're doing well or not. Uh, For me, actually, I look at evening attendance. That's, That's me. Because to me... Evening attendance is a sign of health because for some reason a lot of people don't consider the evening service obligatory, even though it's a called service of the church. But, you know, many people think of the evening service as optional, um, whether that's a healthy perspective or not. But attendance at evening worship, to my mind, reflects the hunger of the body of Christ to more and more hear the preaching of the word, to sing the word, to read the word, to pray the word. Um, And last week, I was so encouraged, half the church came back for the evening service. To me, that as a pastor is beyond encouraging. Another measure that I use, and this is very subjective, is spiritual conversation. Um, Before and after church, are we talking about spiritual things? Or are we talking about travel and work and school and things like that? How quickly do we move on from the content of the sermon or Sunday school to talking about uh, entertainment and sports and distractions and things like that? Um, I think these things, these things can be helpful measurements of spiritual health in a church. But I don't look at busyness, and I hope you don't either. Um, We as a church must be far more interested in growing deep than growing busy. Busyness is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. And in fact, we can substitute busyness for spiritual fruit. And we can even convince ourselves that because there is a lot happening in a church, that therefore it is a spiritual place. Or worse, one of the other things that can happen is, and I've been in churches where this is the case, there are so many activities during the week that when Sunday morning and evening services come around, people are too put out. They feel like they're too tired and they're wearied. And so they don't want to come to the actual thing that God does command for us to do each week. 
So we always have to be careful not to take the things that aren't commanded and put them on such a high level that the things that are commanded end up suffering for it. As the church of Jesus Christ, let's focus on the essentials. Let's not become distracted by other things that may be good or helpful, but they're not part of the mission of the church. So what I'm saying this morning, what I think poor Eutychus has to teach us this morning is that we should learn to love the ordinary life of the church. We should love the ordinary ebb and flow of meeting together with God's people, hearing God's word, praying God's word, singing God's word, tasting God's word, and being built up by God's word as much as you can get it. That is what we need. It is what you need. It's what I need. And it is what the church has always needed from the first moment. Let's pray. Our Father, you give us your word to nourish and care for us, to build us up and make us strong in the scriptures, to strengthen our souls, which sometimes involves being stung. Sometimes it involves hearing things about ourselves we don't want to hear or don't want to think about. But would you do that for us this week, oh God? Would you use your word to encourage us and comfort us giving us exactly what we need in order to live for you. It's in Christ's name that we pray.